with the eschatology of victory after the end of the third century, and indeed an eschatology of victory it certainly was. For it was at the beginning of the fourth century that Christianity for the first time in the Roman Empire achieved its political victory, however nominal, over the forces of the Roman Empire. You will recall that Rome finally collapsed politically, ancient Rome, in the conversion, at least nominally, and the accession of first Constantius and his son Constantine particularly, and that one of the significant things that Constantine did was to proclaim Christianity previously from time to time uh, a forbidden religion to proclaim it as a religio licita, as a permitted religion, and indeed to encourage its spread politically and to make it possible for the first time for Christians to celebrate the Sabbath day uh, every Sunday without fear of reprisal from their non-Christian employers uh, and to a lesser extent from the soldiers, at least in the country parts of the empire where the going had often been tough. Shortly after this, we find Eusebius, the Palestinian bishop of Caesarea, writing about 330 A.D., exulting in the conquests that Christianity has made and looking forward to further advances in the future. He says, we especially, we especially, who placed our hopes in the Christ of God, had unspeakable gladness, and a certain inspired joy bloomed for all of us when we saw every place which shortly before had been desolated by the impieties of the tyrants reviving as if from a long and death-fraught pestilence and temples again rising from their foundations to an immense height and receiving a splendor far greater than that of the old ones which had been destroyed. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is he who changeth times and seasons, who exalteth and debaseth kings. Daniel 2:21. Who raiseth up the poor from the earth, and lifteth up the needy from the dunghill. 1 Samuel 2, verse 8. He hath put down princes from their thrones, and hath exalted them of low degree from the earth. The hungry he hath filled with good things, and the arms of the proud he hath broken. Luke 1, 52-53. To him let us sing the new song, supplying in thought to him who alone doeth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever, Psalm 136, verse 4, to him which smote great kings and slew famous kings, for his mercy endureth forever, Psalm 136, 17, for the Lord remembered us in our low estate and delivered us from our adversaries, Psalm 136, verses 23 through 24, unquote Eusebius.
I've been a little lengthy there because I think it's important for us to see how Eusebius is not regarding these Old Testament texts and the Psalms of the book of Samuel and in Daniel as merely the record of something that happened historically in the past, but of little, if any, relevance to the condition of the church of the New Testament or in subsequent church history. No, no. These Old Testament descriptions of past conquests have an existential significance for Eusebius in his day to describe the further advance of the church through the world and to encourage God's people in adversity and to grant uh, praise and dominion to God in their later prosperity. I imagine that the man who did more to define the deity of Christ and to a lesser extent the Trinity, the ontological Trinity in the early church than anyone else up to this time was the great Athanasius, the Egyptian Archbishop of Alexandria. And in about 340 A.D., he had the following to say. Why are the Jews so irreligious and so perverse as to see what has happened and yet to deny Christ who has brought it all to pass? Or why, when they see even heathens deserting their idols and placing their hope through Christ on the God of Israel, do they deny Christ who was born of the root of Jesse after the flesh and henceforth is king. For if I say, which is just what we actually see, there is no longer king nor prophet nor Jerusalem nor sacrifice nor vision among them, but even the whole earth is being filled with the knowledge of God and Gentiles leaving their own godlessness are now taking refuge with the God of Abraham through the word, even our Lord Jesus Christ, then it must be plain, even to those who are exceedingly obstinate, that the Christ is come, and that he has illumined absolutely all with his light, and given them the true and divine teaching concerning his Father. In lower key, we have a statement as to the historical interpretation of prophecy recorded in Afrahat, the Persian bishop of Mar Matai in what is now Iran. He wrote about A.D. 350 concerning the fourth beast in Daniel 7. He said it was exceedingly terrible and strong and mighty, devouring and crushing and trampling with its feet anything that remained. It is the kingdom of the children of Esau. Because after that, Alexander the Macedonian became king, the kingdom of the Greeks was founded, since Alexander also was one of them, even of the Greeks. But the vision of the third beast was fulfilled in him, since the third and the fourth were one. Now Alexander reigned for twelve years, and the kings of the Greeks arose after Alexander, being seventeen kings. And their years were 269 years from Seleucus Nicanor to Ptolemy. And the Caesars were from Augustus to Philip Caesar 
17 kings. Mention that merely to show how clearly it had crystallized out in the mind of the early church that Rome was indeed the fourth beast, which the kingdom of Christ was more and more replacing and ultimately would totally overcome and incorporate into itself as the rock of the kingdom went rolling on. And then Ephraim, the Syrian commentator of Edessa, wrote in, in his Hymns on the Nativity, chapter 18, in 360 A.D., Blessed art thou, O church, for lo, in thee is the sound, the sound of the great feast, the festival of the king. Zion is deserted, her gates are sore athirst, and forsaken of festivals. Blessed thy gates that, that are open, yet not filled, and thy halls that are enlarged, yet suffice not. In the midst of thee, lo, is the sound, the sound of the nations that cry out, and have put to silence the people. Blessed art thou, O church, in Micah, who cried out, A shepherd shall come forth from Ephratah, for he came to Bethlehem to take from thence the rod of Jesse, and to rule the nations. And then we find in Cappadocia, in what is now Turkey, and uh, from Turkey, certain areas of Palestine, the three Cappadocians, Basil the Great, the Bishop of Caesarea, who in A.D. 365 wrote in his Hexameron, his dissertation on the six days in the fifth homily and the seventh paragraph, if the ocean is good and worthy of praise before God, how much more beautiful is the assembly of a church like this, where the voices of men, of children, and of women arise in our prayers to God, mingling and resounding like the waves which beat upon the shore. This church also enjoys a profound calm, and malicious spirits cannot trouble it with the breath of heresy. His fellow Cappadocian, Hilary, who later became the uh, French Bishop of Poitiers, wrote in A.D. 370 in his homily on Psalm 1, The ungodly are not so, but they are like the dust which the wind driveth away from the face of the earth. He comments, The ungodly have no possible hope of having the image of the happy tree applied to them. The only lot that awaits them is one of wandering and winnowing, crushing, dispersion, and unrest. Shaken out of the solid framework of their bodily condition, they must be swept away to punishment in dust, a plaything of the wind. They shall not be dissolved into nothing, for punishment must find in them some stuff to work on, but ground into particles, imponderable, unsubstantial, dry, they shall be tossed to and fro, and make sport for the punishment that gives them never rest. Their punishment is recorded by the same prophet in another place, where he says, I will beat them small as the dust before the wind, like the mire of the streets, I will destroy them. And then there is Cyril, the Palestinian bishop of Jerusalem, writing about 375. 
in his catechetical lectures, uh, book 15 and sections 1 through 3, he says, We believe in Christ who ascended into the heavens and sat down on the right hand of the Father and shall come in glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Our Lord Jesus Christ then comes from heaven and he comes with glory at the end of this world in the last day. For of this world there is to be an end and this created world is to be a remade anew. Clearly no uh, trace of premillennialism of any kind in these emphases but rather one of the advance and the progress of the kingdom of God throughout the world toward the consummation and the second coming. And the third Cappadocian, Gregory, the Bishop of Nyssa, A.D. 380, wrote in his 17th epistle, Do we romance about three resurrections? Apparently there were one or two who were still entertaining such romances. Do we promise the gluttony of the millennium? Do we declare that the Jewish animal sacrifices shall be restored? Do we lower men's hopes again to the Jerusalem below, imagining its rebuilding with stones of a more brilliant material? What charges like these can be brought against us? To Gregory Nazianza, the Bishop of Sassima, A.D. 385, tells us that it is the purpose for us of God who for us was made man and became poor to raise our flesh and recover his image and remodel man so that we might all be made one in Christ who was perfectly made in all of us all that he himself is that we might no longer be male and female barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, which are badges of the flesh, but might bear in ourselves only the stamp of God, by whom and for whom we were made, and have so far received our form and model from him, that we are recognized by it alone. Yea, would that what we hope for might be, according to the great kindness of our bountiful God, who asks for little, but bestows great things, both in the present and in the future, upon those who tr truly love him. Thus his seventh oration. And then we reach the mentor or teacher of the great Augustine, person with a tremendous following, not only in Calvin, but in South African theology today. If you work through the writings of Calvin in general, and of his institutes in particular, you will be struck by the great emphasis on Augustine, and so too in subsequent orthodox uh, Calvinistic theology. Well, Augustine was converted from premillennial Manichaeanism to Orthodox Christianity by Ambrose, the Italian Bishop of Milan. In A.D. 390 or thereabouts, he wrote in his work The Duties of the Clergy, Book 4, Chapter 28, 
that God had ordered all things to be produced so that there should be food. For Moses wrote that God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And David said, Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fishes of the sea. So these Stoic philosophers have learned from our writings that all things were made subject to man. He says, non-Christian views are really nothing but perversions of God's revelation which the Christians now have treasured intact. And in his work concerning the Christian faith, book 5 and chapter 14, uh, the same Ambrose tells us that God, through the obedience of all, will become the subject in us. He is predicting here, you see, a time when God will be all things in all people, and when he will control man. When the Gentile has believed, and when the Jew has acknowledged him whom he crucified, when the Manetian has worshipped him whom he has not believed to have come in the flesh, when the Aryan has confessed him to be almighty whom he has denied, and when lastly the wisdom of God, his justice, peace, love, resurrection is in all through his own works and through the manifold forms of virtues, Christ will be in us in subjection to the Father. And when, with vice renounced and crime at an end, one spirit in the hearts of all peoples has begun to cleave to God in all things, then will God be all things and in all people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 28. And then finally, this teacher of St. Augustine, may I interject, there's a debate between our millennialists and post-millennialists as to whether Augustine was an R-mill or a post-mill. But from what I've just read you from the teacher of Augustine, Ambrose, I think the, uh, the um, probability uh, is clear. Last, Ambrose says in his anoration in Psalm 43 in chapter 7, Lest the elect be deceived, the Lord warns of what is to follow, that we might not be taken in by the talk of the false prophets, nor any of their wondrous deeds deceive us. But then we shall believe that Christ is going to come when the day of full justice will have begun to shine forth. Seems to be talking of the coming of a day of blessing prior to the final advent of Christ. Christ will then be revealed, doesn't say visibly, Christ will be revealed in the full light of his majesty and just as the lightning goes out from the east and pours its light over the whole world, even to the east, so also the Son of Man, coming with his angels, will illuminate this world 
in order that every man might believe and all flesh might be saved. Which brings us, as we pause on the edge of the emergence of Augustine, certainly the greatest thinker in the early church, possibly the greatest theologian of all time, to a few, only somewhat lesser figures, John Chrysostom, as we proceed on into the 5th century A.D. Chrysostom, the Syrian patriarch of Constantinople, tells us round about 400 in his fourth homily on 2 Thessalonians that the one that holds back now until he be taken out of the way is the one who holds back until the Roman Empire is taken out of the way when the man of sin and the son of perdition shall come. Naturally, for as long as the fear of this empire lasts, no one will willingly exalt himself. But when that is dissolved, he will attack the anarchy and endeavor to seize upon the government both of man and of God. For as the kingdoms before this were destroyed, for example, that of the Medes by the Babylonians, that of the Babylonians by the Persians, that of the Persians by the Macedonians, that of the Macedonians by the Romans, so will this also be destroyed by the Antichrist, and he shall be destroyed by Christ, and it will no longer withhold. And these things Daniel delivered to us with great clearness. Similarly, the French church historian of Aquitania, Sulpicius Severus, wrote in about 410 A.D. in his second book of histories, chapter 3, the iron legs in Daniel 2 point to a fourth power, and that is understood of the Roman Empire, which is more powerful than all the kingdoms which were before it. But the fact that the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay indicates that the Roman Empire is to be divided so as never to be united. This too has been fulfilled, for the Roman state is ruled not by one emperor, but by several. And these are always quarreling among themselves, either in actual warfare or by factions. And then we find the famous Palestinian professor of Bethlehem, Jerome. He wrote a very interesting commentary on the book of Daniel, uh, flourishing about A.D. 415, and he tells us in his commentary uh, on Daniel chapter 2 that in the end of the kingdoms of gold, of silver, of brass, and of iron, a stone was cut out, the Lord and Savior without hands, that is, apart from cohabitation and human seed from the womb of the virgin. And after all kingdoms had been destroyed, that stone becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. He also says something of tremendous significance in his 53rd epistle. He says that Joshua, the son of Nun, was a type of the Lord in name as well as in deed. Joshua, the same name as Jesus, the one in Greek, the one in Hebrew. This Joshua, a type of Jesus, crossed over the Jordan 
subdued hostile kingdoms, as one must now expect Jesus, the Antichrist, to do, subdued hostile kingdoms, divided the land among the conquering people. He's saying that Christ, the second Joshua, subdues the enemy and then divides his spoils among his people who themselves conquer. And who in every city, village, mountain, river, hill torrent and boundary which he dealt with marked out the spiritual realms of the heavenly Jerusalem, that is of the church. He teaches therefore the universal growth and control of the conquering church of Christ on the basis of the subjugating work of Jesus Christ, the second Joshua. And then, coming to that great theologian, Ambrose's pupil, Augustine. There is such a wealth of information, quoted and re-quoted by Calvin and the later Calvinists in Holland and in South Africa, to which we should pay a rather careful attention. In his magnificent work on the City of God, chapter 22, he says we must now contemplate the rich and countless blessings with which the goodness of God, who cares for all he has created, has filled this very misery of the human race, which reflects his retributive justice. That first blessing which he pronounced before the fall, when he said, increase and multiply and replenish the earth, he did not inhibit after man had sinned. He did not retract the mandate of the covenant of works after the fall, says Augustine. But the fecundity originally bestowed remained. This must be our answer to Archie Weiniger and those at Bob Jones University and elsewhere who insist that somehow man's fall into sin has rescinded God's original instruction to man before the fall. And then too, uh, in chapter 20 of the same work, we find Augustine saying that the church is even now the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. Accordingly, even now his saints are reigning with him, although otherwise than they shall reign hereafter. And yet, though the tares are growing in the church along with the wheat, they do not reign with him. For they reign with him who do what the apostle says, if ye be risen with Christ, mind the things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Seek those things which are above, not the things which are on the earth. Of such persons he also says that their conversation is in heaven. In fine, they reign with him who are so in his kingdom that they themselves are his kingdom. He tells us in his letter to Petillion, the Donatist, second book, chapter 38, describing the stone of Daniel 2, the mountain grew out of a small stone, according to the prophets of Daniel. It fills the whole earth. The communion of the church is being spread through the whole world. Not yet has that stone increased and filled the whole earth. That he later shows in his kingdom, which is the church, with which he is filling the whole face of the earth. And similarly, 
in his tractate on the Gospel of John, section 4, Augustine tells us that the Jews stumbled at a stone which had not yet increased. But what sort of persons are those who stumble at the mountain itself? Already you know who they are of whom I speak. Those who deny that the church is being diffused throughout the whole world. They do not stumble at the lowly stone, but at the mountain itself. Because this stone grows into a mountain. The blind Jews did not see the lowly stone. But how great a blindness it is not to see the mountain. And again in chapter 17 of his City of God, he tells us that the church is spreading herself abroad from Jerusalem. And when very many in Judea and Samaria had believed, the church also went into other nations. And finally the gospel of Christ is being preached in the whole world, so that the people of the nations, believing in him who was crucified for their redemption, might venerate with Christian love the blood of the martyrs which they had poured forth with devilish fury and the very kings by whose laws the church had been laid waste might become profitably subject to that name that they had cruelly striven to take away from the earth. You'll notice he's talking of the conversion of the world. He's talking of the repentance and the conversion of those very kings who had led the assault against the church of Jesus Christ. And then he tells us further, in chapter 32, God will by his grace collect, as he now does, a people so numerous that he thus fills up and repairs the blank made by the fallen angels, and that thus that beloved and heavenly city is not defrauded of the full number of its citizens, but perhaps may even rejoice in a still more overflowing population. How many angels do you think there are? Well, I don't know, but millions upon millions by the smallest computation of what we're told in Scripture. And here is Augustine saying that the church will ultimately become more numerous than the angels. He also tells us in his uh, writing against Faust, chapter 13, there is also that other psalm, Psalm 45, where God is spoken of as anointed by God. The very word anointed points to Christ, showing that Christ is God, for God is represented as being anointed. In reading what is said in this psalm of Christ and of the church, the reader will find that what is there foretold is being fulfilled in the present state of the world. The reader will see that the idols of the nations are perishing from off of the earth. He will find that this is predicted by the prophets, as in Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 11, Then shall ye say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under heaven. And again, Jeremiah 16 verses 19 through 21, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, and my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth, 
this militant spiritual regime, that is the regime of Christ's present rule on the earth, is to grow more prosperous with the passing of the years until we come to that most peaceful kingdom in which we shall reign without an enemy. And it is of this first resurrection in the present life that Revelation speaks. Thus Augustine, the African bishop of Hippo Regius in North Africa, 420 A.D. And now let us speed on in the subsequent statement. Socrates, uh, the great church historian of Constantinople, 425, in his book of ecclesiastical history, book 1 and chapter 19, tells us, when the apostles went forth by lot among the nations, Thomas received the apostleship of the Parthians, Matthew was allotted Ethiopia, Bartholomew the part of India contiguous to that country, but the interior India, in which many barbarous nations using different languages lived, was not enlightened by Christian doctrine before the times of Constantine. What he's saying is, Christianity has been expanding powerfully since the time of the apostles, but not all at once, not all parts of the world were reached with the gospel within one generation, but this process continued and extended and expanded in sub subsequent years. Vincent, whose name means the conqueror, Vincent, the, the French presbyter of Lerinum, wrote in his Commonitions, uh, chapter 23, around A.D. 435, someone will say perhaps, Shall there then be no progress in Christ's church? Certainly, all possible progress. For what being is there, so envious of men, so full of hatred to God, who would seek to forbid it? Yet on condition that it be real progress, not alteration of the faith. For progress requires that the subject be enlarged in itself. Alternation, that it be transformed into something else. The intelligence then, the knowledge, the wisdom, as well as of individuals, as of all, as well as of one man, as of the whole church, ought, in the course of ages and centuries, to increase and make much and vigorous progress. I like what Sozomen, the Palestinian church historian of Gaza, wrote in A.D. 440 in his Ecclesiastical History, um, Book 1 and Chapters 1 and 6. He's looking back in retrospect and describing what happened almost a century and a half earlier in the conversion of Constantius and his son Constantine and the enormous progress that was made in the expansion and consolidation of Christianity at that point. Sozomen writes, So divine and marvelous a change had taken place in the circumstances of men that ancient cults and national laws have fallen into contempt. Under the government of Constantine, the churches flourished and increased in numbers daily, since they were honored by the good deeds of a benevolent and well-disposed emperor. 
and otherwise God preserved them from the persecutions and harassments which they had previously encountered. When the churches were suffering from persecution in other parts of the world, Constantius alone, the father of Constantine, accorded the Christians the right of worshipping God without fear. I know of an extraordinary thing done by him which is worthy of being recorded. He wished to test the fidelity of certain Christians, excellent and good men, who were attached to his palaces. He called them all together and told them that if they would sacrifice to idols as well as to serve God, they would remain in his service and retain their appointments. But that if they refused compliance with his wishes, they should be sent from the palaces and should scarcely escape his vengeance. When differences of judgment had divided them into two parties, separating those who consented to abandon their religion from those who preferred the honor of God to their present welfare, the emperor determined upon retaining those who had adhered to their faith as his friends and counselors. But he turned away from the others, whom he regarded as unmanly and impostors, and sent them from his presence, judging that they who had so readily betrayed their God could never be true to their king. Hence it is probable that while Constantius was alive, it did not seem contrary to the laws for the inhabitants of the countries beyond Italy to profess Christianity, that is to say, in Gaul, in Britain, or in the region of the Pyrenean Mountains as far as the Western Ocean. When Constantine succeeded to the same government, then the affairs of the churches became still more brilliant. See the pattern. One of constant expansion of Christianity in spite of temporary setbacks with each new wave of the expansion of Christianity going out further into the world and uh, wetting a greater area of the seashore than the previous wave had done before it receded. So too Theodoret, the Greek bishop of Cyrus in Syria, writing about A.D. 555, in his commentary on the visions of Daniel, describes the end of the dream of Daniel 2 and adds, Moreover, this teaches us to commence our interpretation from the last things, and so we ask first who this may be who is called the stone, the stone which at first seems small, which soon becomes very large and covers the circle of the earth. We are taught both by the Old and the New Testament that our Lord Jesus Christ has been designated the stone, for he was cut out of the mountain without hands, being born of a virgin. In the 6th century there is only one thinker that I wish to mention very briefly, and that is Promasius, the African primate of Byzacene. It's interesting how many of these early church fathers come from Africa. Have you noticed that? Um, Tertullian, uh, Cyprian, 
Clement of Alexandria, Oregon, Promarcius, and so forth. This Promarcius combined the eschatologically optimistic views of Tychonius and of Augustine and of Victorinus and Cassiodorus in their interpretation of Revelation 20 with his own realistic views and he helped prepare the way for the development of the later eschatological views of Altpertus, Alquin, Rebanus, and Wallifid Strabo. Last, I would like to close at the beginning of the 7th century as we get ready to lurch forward quite rapidly toward John Calvin himself, the views of Gregory the Great, the Italian Bishop of Rome. He says in his commentary on the 53rd epistle, We give thanks the more to that grain of mustard seed, Matthew 13, for that, from what appeared a small and despicable seed, it has become so spread abroad everywhere by branches rising and extending themselves from the same root that all the birds of heaven may make their nests in them. And thanks be to that leaven which in three measures of meal has leavened in unity the mass of the whole human race. Matthew 13. And thanks be to the little stone, which, cut out of the mountain without hands, has occupied the whole face of the earth. Daniel 2. And which, to this end, everywhere distends itself, that from the human race reduced to unity, the body of the whole church might be perfected. And so this distinction between the several members might serve for the benefit of the compacted whole. We have seen then thus far the growth of God's elect and the church of God from a little acorn down through the centuries a little by little and especially after the coming of the Lord Jesus and the outpouring of his spirit to an ever-increasing and a mighty tree. And we are seeing through the missionary outreach of the educational ministry of this church the gathering of all of the birds of the air to come and to nest in the branches of this continually growing tree. And as we pause here at the end of this lecture and get ready to see the further growth of this tree some deterioration, but even then, further growth through the Middle Ages down to the advent of the Reformation. We see in the Reformation a new spurt of life come into this tree again. As Christ maintains his church, the church that shall not be prevailed against by the gates of hell, but the church which in spite of all vicissitudes will ultimately prevail against and smash down the gates of hell itself in fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, the father of all the believers, that his seed shall gain possession of the gates of their enemies. Thank you. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L, 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.